This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Nancy with Stories of Win, and I have today the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Darimar Carrasquillo, who is a principal investigator in the intramural program at NCCIH at the NIH. Thank you so much for letting me interview you today. It's a pleasure to have you. It's been a very awaited interview. I'm super <laughs> excited. Thank you, Nancy. It's 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 an honor to be here, and I'm also very excited. Thank you for the invitation and also for putting together such nice initiative, which I think was needed, and, and it's making a difference in people. I think it's nice to have uh, examples of us. Yeah. Thank you so much. So we always like starting our interviews, asking you, how did you you know, get interested in the brain? Where did that curiosity about the brain come from for you? Huh. So when I was an undergrad student, this is at the University of Puerto Rico, you know, my plan was to go to med school back home during those years. <laughs> if you like science or, or math, which is what I like, the counselors would tell you, you know, either go to uh, engineering or medicine. So I picked medicine because I wanted to know how the body works. Um, then I, I started in, in, in college with undergrad pre-med, and uh, all my, my, my electives, I started taking them in psychology, because I was very intrigued by how different people have such different personalities and also with personality disorders and things like that. So in the biology, general biology class, the TA, his name was Joey, and I can't remember his last name, <laughs> um, but he told me in random that he, like something about a research that he was conducting, I think it was on um, something microbiology related. So I got really excited because I thought, wait, what? There's like labs, research labs here, like for real, like in the movies? <laughs> and and I, I begged him if he could take me to see the labs and see what was going on and maybe just let me shadow or do dishes, anything. I was like, I don't care as long as I get to just experience a real lab, research lab, like in the movies. So what he did, and I think this really shows how important it is to have good mentors, which I think is gonna be a theme in my career. Um, he told me, well, you can come and watch, but instead of coming to my lab, I'm gonna give you a list. Back then, there's no internet, not too much. So <laughs> he gave me a hard copy of a list of all the investigators that were at Julio Garcia Diaz, the, the research building over there. And it had name and topic, oh, and room number. And he said, I encourage you to look through this and then reach out to something that gets your attention in terms of topic. And if it's still the one for like my lab, then of course you can come. I think he was a master's student. So I looked through the list and immediately the lab of Sandra Peña de Ortiz had the title of, of um, molecular mechanisms of learning and memory. And I thought, what? This is insane. So I go and go to her, because I thought it was the perfect hybrid between the psychology and biology. Um, talk to, to Dr. Peña, and you know, same story, like, please, 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 can I come watch, <laughs> do anything? 
and she just let me uh, let me join the lab first as a special volunteer, then you know uh, uh, through the MBRS program and all these different resources. And I fell in love. I fell in love the minute I started. I still remember distinctly distinctly my first behavior experiment with rats and seeing how they learned a task and how they behave. And then we, could, we would take the brains out and we would look at changes. And seeing all of this was so fascinating to me that there was no way back. And still, my mentality was in the autopilot of going to med school until Peña told me, you know, you might want to consider <laughs> going to grad school because you're really good at this and you can tell that that she could tell that I loved it. I lived in the lab. I moved to the lab, <laughs> basically. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's not being a, 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 yeah, there's not a step back after that. I fell in love. That was what I liked. And that's how I, that's what I've been doing the whole time in my life has been uh, focused on understanding how the brain contributes to behaviors, complex behaviors, you know, learning and memory and then, then pain. And then I stayed in pain. <laughs> so then your undergraduate mentor told you, you should consider grad school and that switched your path to a PhD track. What did you end up studying in your PhD? So in my PhD, I think two main themes, having good mentors and two flexibility, you know, because I think I would have missed out on going to grad school if I had continued, if it's not because Dr. Peña intervention, <laughs> mm -hmm. why are you going to med school? You really like this other thing. There's other options that I didn't even think about because sometimes you're so focused on that path that you had in your mind that that's the path that you have to take. So it's a similar thing now for grad school. So in grad school, I look for schools that had at least three labs <laughs> that, that had PIs that were working on, on things that I like, which was learning and memory and cellular molecular things. And that took me to Baylor College of Medicine. And I was entirely decided that I was going to join this PI's lab. I contacted him ahead of time. <laughs> like, he invited me to come earlier in the summer. And then uh, they had a really good uh, minority program over there that um, brought us in earlier and then supported us all throughout, kind of like to make sure that we were um, receiving everything that we needed to succeed. Um, so I was brought in uh, earlier, stay there for a whole semester because he allowed me to stay there so that I could settle with the classes and all of that stuff, which was challenging. Um, and then I did my mandatory rotations, <laughs> one in an epilepsy lab, and then another one, because I fell in love, I really liked the parallels. When I interviewed Rob Giro, who worked in, in the pain field in the spinal cord, and he was, at the time, they were studying and evaluating the parallels of the cellular and synaptic mechanisms that were similar between learning and memory and pain, one being adaptive plasticity or good plasticity, and the other one being maladaptive plasticity. So I was really fascinated by how those two were so similar, but then having completely different behavioral outputs that were. That's so cool. So yeah. I rotated in Rob's lab and I asked him when I asked him if I could rotate in his lab, I told him, hey, Rob, like, 
Dr. Giro at the time. <laughs> like, can I come, can I come rotate in your lab? But I don't really want to join your lab because, <laughs> because I, I like your topic. It's really cool, but I want to study the brain. And in your lab, all you guys study is from the neck down. So Rob, very kind, uh, told me, of course, you can come rotate in my lab. But he was really smart, and he offered me a rotation project that was looking at the amygdala, which ended up being my whole focus. And it was uh, also looking at plasticity, but now in the amygdala, because he had um, a collaboration that was pointing to, to that being a key structure in the, in the modulation of pain. So then, like immediate love, first rotation, uh, first rotation experiment was to perform this immuno that you could see the results with your eyes with like no microscope. The central amygdala because it was just lighting up. With no microscope. No micro oh my like, God. This was DAB. It was uh, colorimetric staining. Oh, I think that I even makes have sense. the okay. slices yeah. over there. And you can see the like it was the whole slice was not colored. And then the amygdala just really, really dark that spot. And it of course like that must have been something really important. So then I had to go to the other PI and tell him, yeah, <laughs> thank you for all your support, <laughs> but I'm gonna join Rob's lab. <laughs> and then, then for graduate work, I, I studied how that structure, the central amygdala, and the protein we were looking at, it was a kinase, and how um, activation of that molecule um, was important and necessary and sufficient for the modulation of pathological pain in mice. So cool. It's funny how sometimes we think that we're so sure that this is what I'm going to do and and then something better comes along. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. No, it's it's I think it's humbling and it's something I try to to share with the trainees a lot because sometimes especially people with our personality type A planners it's kind of hard to see that there's other paths <laughs> or to even consider them because you're so focused on, on the one that you delineated as the one that you wanted to follow. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So in a couple of sentences, what, what did you find? What was the discovery or the discoveries you made like during your doctoral work? So basically the main findings were that this kinase is activated when there's inflammatory pain in the amygdala, that if you block that, you block pain, you, you reduce pain. Wow. And this is only in the CA. This is local activation. And if you activate it, you can induce pain in the absence of injury, showing that it's sufficient to make the animals behave as if they were injured, but there's no injury whatsoever. They're hypersensitive. Um, the other big finding was uh, that all of this was happening in the right hemisphere only, independently of the site of injury. And as you may know, the pain pathways are classically, they cross so that they end up in the brain on the side opposite of the peripheral side. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the dogma that right brain controls the left side of the mm -hmm. body and the other way around. So in this case, no matter which side of the injury happens, only the right amygdala was uh, modulating. If we did all the money, we didn't see ERK activation in the left ever, 
And we, when we did the pharmacological experiments, the, the left manipulations didn't do anything. So that was also pretty cool. Was there, like, in, in humans, is the right hemisphere more related to pain than the left hemisphere? So, we, so I, I looked into that a lot, and it depends. It depends on the task. It depends on sex. Okay. There's a lot of different um, hypotheses to that. But up to today, like close to 20 years after we, we did that, and we still don't know what's driving that lateralization and whether or how it relates to the human one. In most of the human imaging studies, you do see a right, um, right dominance. But there's some people that suggest that it might be because of the, of the sex or because of the va balance, mm. balance of, the, of the stimulus. Okay, that's very interesting. So when you finish your PhD um, and, you know, I mean, that, that's a fascinating PhD project. Um, what, what did you do next? Like, um, what type of postdoctoral training did you get? Back then, I realized that pretty much everywhere you stuck an electrode in the pain neuraxis, in the pain pathway, there were changes in the firing of the neurons after injury. Like, I noticed that that was a common theme in all the different papers that we kept reading. And a lot of people were interested in studying synaptic mechanisms uh, of, of pain at all of these different places, or they were looking at descriptive, you know, the descriptive, it goes up or it goes down. But then a, a second strength in that neuroscience program and department was cellular physiology focused on ion channels and excitability. So, and, and it was also one of the focus in Rob's lab. So I got to see the, how ion channels and, and molecules can affect excitability and, or the firing of the neurons. And then I also saw how firing was changed pretty much everywhere after pain. So I decided that I wanted to get training to become a hardcore best ion channel excitability physiologist I could be with the goal that then I could bring into my lab everything from ion channels all the way to the animals and behavior and things like that. So I look for, for labs that were specialized in that. I didn't care which context and I didn't care if it had behavior or not. I just wanted to, to have ion channels and excitability. So I ended up in, or, or I was offered the opportunity to join Ginner Bones Lab. They study potassium channels mainly, and it's a lab that is entirely focused on channels and excitability <laughs> um, in both the heart and the and neurons. So a big part of the lab, the lab is divided in two, a heart, a heart uh, side of the lab <laughs> and the neuron side of the lab. <laughs> and so I joined as the, as the brain side of the lab. And a lot of what they were doing at the time was uh, in dissociated neurons. And I had just taken a course that, that Rob encouraged me to, to take in Cold Spring Harbor, where I learned to do um, slice electrophysiology patch clamp. So Gene was really excited about the opportunity of bringing that in. I was super excited about the opportunity of bringing that in too. So, so I came in and started to do, you know, set up everything to do slice recordings based on the 
uh, course <laughs> and then started patching and, and learning about ion channels and, and becoming an expert in that. And then abandoned pain and behavior for all those years. <laughs> oh, so you were not patching from the amygdala? No. So in Gene's lab, I patch everywhere and anywhere. <laughs> the question was firing and ion channels. And then we would... <laughs> oh, I see. So It was not about the brain region. It was about the channels. Yeah, so we... Most of the work I did was in the visual cortex, in layer five visual cortical neurons, because um, that's where, where most of the dissociated work, prior work had been done. Then um, some other projects that we started doing that had some, some behavioral context brought me to the cerebellum, the Purkinje neurons, the most gorgeous neurons in the whole world. And, <laughs> and then uh, also the suprachiasmatic nucleus because uh, that project was involved in circadian rhythms. So in, in all of those, I would patch from those neurons, uh, from those regions, and then uh, we had either genetically modified animals that had certain phenotypes that were either cerebellum dependent or, or circadian rhythm uh, abnormalities. And then I was trying to figure out how that was happening with, uh, mm, in terms yeah. of the excitability and ion channels. And did you become an expert on channels and excitability? I like to say that I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it took me a while in lab meetings. I would always say, well, I'm not expert. Like, I'm no physiologist, but this is what I think. And then and I think this is one of the things that us women do a lot. And, and, and minority groups also quite do a lot, that we always excuse ourselves, you know, uh, I was like, oh no, no, I um, you know, I'm no electrophysiologist, but this is, this is what I think, and it got to a point where Jean said, okay, you can't say that anymore. You are an electrophysiologist. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, I had to stop saying that. So I think I have her blessing, and she's probably one of the best electrophysiologists that I know. So, I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Sounds like from the beginning, your plan was to learn those skills in your postdoc and then bring them back to pain. Yep. Um, and, and that is what you've done. So can you <laughs> tell us more about that transition of setting up your lab? And um, I think you've had your lab for, for a good amount of time now. I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to throw the wrong number, but, <laughs> but it's, it's not a new lab. It was in, in, in 2014, eight years. Okay. Right. Yeah, All it right. was in 2014 that that I started here at the NIH and setting up a lab. Um, the excitement and how surreal it feels to be at an institution like this, but pretty much any institution, and you're like, "This is my space. This is my lab. This is my office." It's 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 just it's amazing, right? So it was it it was it was a great opportunity, and I. I I, I was very happy and grateful. Um, I still wonder, <laughs> I still wonder if the whole idea of going from channels to behavior and now incorporating circuits, if it was a good idea to be in a lab, because what that means is that while I have expertise in all of those components, I had to set up all of those things. Um, into projects, which leads to beautiful stories. So that's the good thing, and I love it. But 
everything takes much longer. So I think going back, I would still do it <laughs> because I, I think focusing only on one component would have been too hard to pick which one. Um, but it's quite challenging to, to have all of that running at the same time while you're trying to be established as an investigator, buy all the equipment, train new people, and things like mm. that. So it's, I, I, I'd say it's challenging, but very rewarding. And then there's each first, you know? Like the first immuno. Oh my God, this is the first immuno <laughs> in my lab. <laughs> the first life spread. There were many first, the first ones. Patching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And typically, just recently, the first technique results that were collected that I didn't collect <laughs> happened. And it was this year. But before, every single first result from a technique was from my hands and and from me, you know? So you were very hands-on. At the beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, I set up everything, and I would, once things were working, then I would hand the baby to <laughs> to, to, to a trainee or the technician, but but it's just fun, you know, to, to do all of that. But then as time goes by, you get more responsibilities, more trainees, and you have more experienced people in the lab that can take care of things. Then... I'm not, I don't do a whole lot of hands-on stuff anymore. Tell us about your research program and, and some of the projects, some of the, you know, discoveries your lab has already made and, and perhaps some of the ongoing projects as well. It was a direct follow-up from, from my thesis work that my whole research program is founded on my thesis, <laughs> on my graduate that's thesis. Amazing. Uh, that's amazing. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's... Literally as if I paused, did the postdoc, then unpaused, picked up where I left. But at the time, now we have a lot better tools. So I modified uh, the research program to accommodate the new tools and the newer questions in the field. So basically, our big question is how the brain modulates pain and pathological states and physiological conditions and we focus on the central amygdala. And the reason for that is because, as you know, pain is not just the ouch or physical component, but it also has a strong uh, emotional component. And I was interested in that uh, interaction between affective and somatosensory component of pain. So that's the whole reason why we started in the amygdala way back when. In our lab, that's the big question. The main reason I got interested in this is because as a grad student, when I wrote my F31, my, my grant, uh, and even my proposal for, for grad school, we were not sure whether, because the amygdala is well positioned for ascending pronociceptive pathways, so pathways that drive pain, but it's also positioned in descending anatomically, in descending pathways that drive analgesia. So I remember in my grant writing, I don't know what will happen. If this kinase drives pain, then it might mean that it's involved in ascending. But if it drives analgesia, mm. then it might mean it's involved in descending. So at the time, we saw it was involved in pronociception. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's ascending. Yeah. That means sensing pain, right? Pronociception. That, that's drives, the word? It drives driving okay. pain. Okay. Yeah, driving, driving pain. Oh, okay. 
when, when I started in the lab, I was still unhappy with the seemingly conflicting results, you know, because in the 80s and 90s, people had shown that the central amygdala modulates analgesia. Then we and others showed that it modulates hypersensitivity. So I was still mm. kind of like unhappy about how this How is this possible, get, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the central amygdala, the two populations that were getting a lot of attention were the PKC delta and the somatostatin. So I thought, oh, now we have cell type specificity. Maybe it's about the cell types. Maybe one group of cells is doing one thing and another one was doing something else. And that's pretty much what we found. So what we found, which was super cool, and I'm, I, I was very excited about it, is that the central amygdala can indeed do both. It can amplify pain and it can decrease pain. And the directionality of that modulation is dependent on which cell types are recruited. If it's the somatostatin, it's analgesia, and if it's the PKC delta, it's uh, hypersensitivity or increases in pain. And I think that's been the major um, discovery, and what we've been doing after that is then diving into the cellular and synaptic mechanisms. So we, we, the way I like to describe it is that we take a, a an airplane view, so we can look at the roads, you know, which which circuits, like who's bringing the information in and to which cell, who's and where are these cells sending the information in the brain, so inputs and outputs, uh, and then we also have a zoomed in view, where we zoom and look at the cellular and synaptic mechanisms that are driving each of these changes at each of these synapses, and that's basically what we've been working on. You know, my dream is that before I retire, we will have a map <laughs> of all of these inputs and outputs and how they contribute to somatosensory and affective components of pain. And then in each of those points, you can zoom in and see which ion channels and which uh, synaptic mechanisms are contributing to these changes. So we're slowly putting the pieces Amazing. of the together. That's awesome. What a beautiful research program and and vision as well for, for your lab. Um, now, this makes it sound like, you know, everything has been perfect and easy. <laughs> and especially like the, you know, the trajectory of your career has been so beautiful, given that, you know, like you made some discoveries when you were a PhD student and you're building on those discoveries. But I'm sure there were challenges on the way. So um, can you share with us? Uh, some of one of those challenges that you've had um, during your scientific trajectory? Yeah, I think there's three main challenges and all, all of them, I think, were solved uh, by the same thing, which is surrounding yourself with people that can help you and support you. I think that doing science takes a village. You cannot do this alone and you need that people around you. So one challenge was in grad school. The other one in postdoc and then starting a lab was probably the hardest. Um, In grad school, I think this one is important for students that are not native speakers that are listening to us. Um, When I started grad school, as as you know, because you're Puerto Rican, in Puerto Rico, all of our textbooks were in English for science. So I was used to reading in English but all of our tests were in Spanish, at least back in my days. So I was, I was used to input was coming in English, <laughs> output was going in Spanish. So my very first exam 
neuroanatomy, I studied the usual way. It didn't occur to me that then I had to sit down and it was going to be a whole bunch, I think it was five or six essay questions. And I think I could, I responded maybe two. I remember the heart going like crazy because the whole time I was thinking, oh my God, the English, like how do I put this down? I understood all the questions, but I was having trouble putting down in a way because you know, I usually would have someone read things for me to make sure that I was not saying something <laughs> wrong <laughs> and that the tenses were correct, that the spelling was correct. And this is all without word assistance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like you're writing Handwritten tests, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't have the, like now I think it would be easier because you can type and word helps you <laughs> <laughs> to not look so bad. <laughs> but I flunked the test badly and um, I flung the class because the class was was two tests and that's it wow and in grad school if you I think it was you you got two or three strikes for C's I mean let alone <laughs> completely flunking um, and you were out that was probably the the hardest because I remember thinking I came here to succeed I'm not going home and especially not because of this, you know, like I know the material, it's just a matter of learning. So this is where villages come in and having supportive programs come in. I went to all of my professors and I told them about what happened and I asked them if they could please give me practice tests that I could do ahead of time so that I could practice putting my my thoughts down and come back a little bit more comfortable Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the test. Um, so they did that, and then I did. I I had to retake neuroanatomy, but I passed all my other classes, some with A, some with B. But more importantly, I was very comfortable because the faculty helped me overcome that by giving me practice uh, questions that I would give them back, and they would score them and come back to me. And honestly, what I realized is that it was all in my head because everything was fine. But I think that the 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 panic of I'm going to write something stupid and they won't understand, uh, I think that, that that was just blocking me from, mm-hmm. from, from performing. And when I knew everything was fine, then I could just do fine. <laughs> so I think that was the hardest. So you build your confidence, but everything was there in reality. You had the capability. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Then, um, and I'm sharing all of them because I think it is important. Um, the, the the then grad school after after that was 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 great <laughs> you know everything everything went smoothly I cannot complain um, then for um, postdoc it was fantastic Jean uh, is a very supportive mentor I was surrounded in a good environment um, but during postdoc I had a baby and I was a single mom. And that came with a lot of challenges that I didn't expect. And this was the only time in my career where I thought, this, I'm not going to be a PI. I can't be a PI because I can't be both a good mom and a good scientist. And I'm going to choose my son over anything, anytime, <laughs> any day. Um, and this again is when good mentors and, and cheerleaders come in. Um, so I went to Jean and I told her, you know, I, 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 I was not born 
to 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 just do bare minimum. You know, I was born to. I came here because I wanted to succeed and I want to be the best. <laughs> you know, and I cannot do it with this schedule and with all these limitations of having a child. So I'm gonna, you know, I just wanted you to know that I'm gonna start looking for other things <laughs> to do <laughs> that will allow me to succeed and be like the best at that. And she t- and I talk with Rob also. Rob has been there all the time. And both of them, but Jim particularly was, uh, I'm so grateful because she told me, you know what, Yadimar? When things are hard, it's not a good time to make decisions. So I suggest you wait, you continue your path, and I guarantee you that things will get better when the baby's older and when you have like a better system. And if then you still feel the same way, then of course I'll support you. I'm so glad mm, <laughs> she wow. did that because here I am, you know, yeah. and I was ready to just go in another path. And Rob, Rob is, has always been like, no, you have to stay. <laughs> like it's gonna be fine. <laughs> But I think hearing it from Jean, uh, it, it, it really made a big difference. Um, then, of course, starting Overlap is hard. You know, um, being an institution uh, where in this building, this is a neuroscience building, <laughs> it has 80 plus uh, faculty, and I'm the only uh, non-Asian brown uh, female. So it's hard. It's hard to fit in. It's hard to click with people. It's hard to reach out. And it took me a while to find that community and, and finding the people that would support me. When Mario Penso uh, also Hispanic, Dominican, Black. When he joined here, when he was, when he was interviewing, I almost begged him to please. <laughs> so please come, please and, come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be my friend. <laughs> and uh, when he joined, my life changed immediately. You know, I had someone that I could relate to, that I could go to, and it was just easy. Um, even though he was junior and a peer, and we were both not knowing what we were doing, but at least you have someone. <laughs> Um, then also, again, finding mentors. So um, Javin Chaham has been an amazing mentor. And as soon as I brought him on board as a mentor, he still earlier today, I, I, I was receiving um, very useful information from him and, and advice. So I think now things are pretty set <laughs> and, and it's good. But I think that's why I said the common theme is you need to have good people. You need to have good mentors that can hold you and guide you through every stage of your career. I'm sure that even later I will continue to need this uh, kind of support. Everyone does. But it's a little bit harder, I think, for certain people than for others. Um, you know, when, when, when there's very little cultural um, similarities, it's a little harder to to communicate and connect, you know, a lot, we would love to think that science is about science, but a lot of science is about, you know, hanging out with people and then mm-hmm. ideas come in and you become friends and they help each other and things like that. And if that doesn't happen organically because there's this cultural barrier or, or of course, the biases, <laughs> then things can be a lot harder. The good news is that 
that as soon as you get people that are on your side and your corner, then you can succeed. So the, the, the important thing, I think, is to find those people and hold on to them. Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like your life depends on it. <laughs> those are my challenges. Thank you so much for sharing that. That um, I, I always love hearing uh, successful PIs talk about challenges that they've had uh, while they're setting up their la- labs, right? Because and and that mentors continue. That's something that I very recently learned that when you become faculty, you get mentors and believe me, you need them. So, uh, yep. <laughs> the, you know, mentoring is a very important part of, of academic lives and it's forever. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Now to finish with a lighter note. Uh, I did not <laughs> warn you, so don't worry if you don't come up with something. You could say whatever, it's fine. Uh, we just want to learn a little bit more about Yarimar outside of the lab. What do you do? It could be for fun, ah. for de-stressing. Like when you're not in the lab, you are filling the blank. <laughs> <laughs> Biking, music, dancing. Those are the three things that I love outside of lab and outside of being a mom. Now my son is a teenager, so he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, the, the responsibilities associated with, with him have decreased, so I get a lot of more me time. Um, and I, I love biking, like biking long distances and, and just disconnecting. And right now I'm training for a century ride, so to do a, a hundred miles, hopefully. Wow! In wow, you're a serious biker. Yeah. That's um, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow! So what that inspiration. I, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I like running, but I am not good at it. <laughs> but it's it's faster. So sometimes when I need to de-stress and disconnect, I just go for a run. And because I'm not good, I disconnect quite quickly and then. <laughs> 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 um, and then of course. Uh, dance salsa dancing and and bachata merengue like all of those it's when i was in rob's lab the trainees would if i was in the zone they would behind my back without me knowing it took me forever to realize they would put music on just to see and how you would start I would dancing <laughs> that's funny I'd start singing dancing and like just focus was gone <laughs> it was just natural switch yeah that's amazing yep 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 yeah, so those are my, my, and of course, hanging out with my son and doing things with him, even though nowadays it's... <laughs> He'll rather it's be a little bit. without his mom. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and going home, you know, spending time with my dad and my mom, my family. Um, I'm sure you've experienced this already, but as they start aging... And if they hear me, they'd be like, I'm not aging. <laughs> but, but it's uh, spending time with them is really important for me. Yeah. I like traveling, but these days, you know, that's kind of minimal. It's a little harder. Yeah. Well, but it sounds like you keep busy with your long distance biking, your son <laughs> and, and your dancing. Thank you so much again for sharing your story. No, thank you for inviting me. And, and again, for, for putting this together. I think it's, it's pretty awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> it takes a village. We have a village too, working on this. Yep. 